In Numbers chapter 32, last week we saw the reality of the Reubenites and the Gadites, two tribes of Israel, that decided, hey, why go any further? We can just settle here east of the Jordan. And we talked about some of the reasons that lead not just them, but us to settle for less than the full inheritance that God has for us. And I pray that that was challenging for you as you think about life. Now as we get into chapter 33 and 34, uh, there's going to be discussion about actually possessing the full land. And so because we don't have time to read all of it, I am simply going to read uh, the end of Numbers chapter 33 and summarize for you the beginning of 33 and all of chapter 34. So the beginning of Numbers chapter 33 is actually a fascinating recap of the entire book of Numbers, right? Even all the way back into the book of Exodus. The full journey of the Israelites out of Egypt up to this point. And it lists 42 campsites, for lack of better terminology, where they stopped all along the way. Now, this is not a, uh, a complete and comprehensive list. Uh, so there's reasons for maybe why they chose some of these places. Some of these places were great highs of the journey, and some of these places, if you read them later, were great lows of the journey, places of massive rebellion and sin and falling and wondering if God was going to, to stick with them. But this history provides a basis for what God then is about to tell the Israelites through Moses. Verse 50. On the plains of Moab by the Jordan, across from Jericho, the Lord said to Moses, Speak to the Israelites and say to them, when you cross the Jordan into Canaan, drive out all the inhabitants of the land before you. Destroy all their carved images and, cast, and their cast idols, and demolish all their high places. Take possession of the land and settle in it, for I have given you the land to possess. Distribute the land by lot according to your clans. To a larger group, give a larger inheritance. To a smaller group, a smaller one. Whatever falls to them by lot will be theirs. Distribute it according to your ancestral tribes. But if you do not drive out the inhabitants of the land, those you allow to remain will become barbs in your eyes and thorns in your side. They will give you trouble in the land where you will live. And then I will do to you what I plan to do to them. The writer of Numbers goes on in chapter 34 to talk about the allotment of the land and the appointment, basically, of one representative for each of the 12 tribes of Israel to lay claim to that land. But it's this middle little section that sticks out to me as I read these two chapters and is prominent to the people. It is, in essence, the last battle cry before they cross the Jordan River and go in to take possession of the land. And it is a dire warning. Moses, through God, says two things to the people. The first thing he says to them is, drive out everyone who's in the land. Everyone. And all of their stuff, all of their idolatry and, and cast idols and, and all the things they've carved out by their hands, get rid of all of it. And then in Numbers chapter 34, he presents this big bounty of land. And he basically says, fill the whole thing. 
Now, why does God do this? Here's what I want to do, just to kind of set the scale for you. I'm going to ask three questions about this, and these three questions will come back to help us when we try at the end of this talk to make sense of what this even means for people like us in 2021. The first question is why, the second question is how, and the third question is on what basis, right? So it's kind of how I'm structured. Why, how, on what basis? So he says, get rid of everyone and everything in the land, and fill the whole land. The first question I ask is why? What, what is this all about? Why get rid of all of the Canaanites? This seems harsh to people in us, and it doesn't really meet our modern sensibilities. What does it mean to go possess a land that wasn't or, uh, originally yours, get rid of all the people, and claim it as your own? And it's easy for us to say, well, God told them to, that's why. But there's more to it than just this. And the truth is that God's judgment was on the people that were in the land currently. You can go all the way back uh, to Genesis chapter 12 and the chapters that follow when God is uh, saying to to Abraham, he's going to make a great nation out of them and he's going to give them a land, but he basically says, I can't give it to you now because the sin of the Amorites, who are people in Canaan, has not been filled to its full In other words, he's having patience with them and compassion with them over the next 400 years. This is not quick passing judgment. God's striking them down with a lightning bolt, but but waiting patiently for potential repentance that never comes. There's judgment on the people of the land unless there is repentance. And of course, we would find, if you keep going on to read in the book of Joshua, very early in the story, that there is some repentance, and those people are welcomed into participating in the land, chiefly Rahab, the prostitute, and that amazing story that happens in the opening chapters of Joshua. But drive these people out first because there's judgment, but there's more to it. God is pretty extreme, like get, get rid of all of them and all of their stuff, and if you don't, bad stuff is going to happen to you. What is that all about? Well, God knows something of the human heart. (laughs) That is that if we don't clean the stuff out that will trip us up, we will trip up. That failure to do what God has asked them to do in this situation will definitely mean compromise that leads to death in the future. Perhaps you've seen this illustration before that uh, you can take a big and strong person and sit, stand them up on a chair and have a, a less than big and strong person come and stand uh, on the ground below them and grab hands with them. And it is imminently easier for the less than strong person to pull the big person off the chair than it is for the big person on the chair to lift the smaller person up. It is just always easy to be pulled down. And God is warning the Israelites, if you don't take this seriously, if you leave idols in the land, if you leave uh, barriers or or trips uh, in the land, you are going to stumble. And then the call for them to populate the whole land is so significant because if they fail to lay claim on any section of the land, Someone else or something else will, right? You know how this works. It's the unkempt part of your yard that is filled with weeds, not because you put them there, but because they laid claim to the section that you aren't tending. 
All of you are much better yard keepers than me, so you don't have that problem. But the places that we don't care for, other things lay claim to them. They simply don't lie dormant. They get taken by other things. So why does God make these commands? Three pretty important reasons. The one is God has pronounced judgment. The second is if we leave trips in our way, we're going to fall over them. And the third is if we don't lay claim to the land, then someone or something else will. So the second question is how? How are they going to do this? How are they going to defeat this group of people, this this tribe, uh, these people who have fortified cities and armies? Some of you know the stories of of Jericho and the, the fortified walls that go around it. Imagine being the people of Israel, sitting on the plains of Moab, able to see into the land and thinking to themselves, okay, we got here, but how are we going to do this? And the answer is as simple as you might seem. That is, they're going to do it by fighting real battles. They're going to have to go and fight. They're not going to be able to simply push a button on the east side of the Jordan that is simply going to remove all the Canaanites from the land. They're going to actually have to go in there. They're going to have to struggle. They're going to have to sweat. They're going to have to bleed. They're going to be bruised and battered. They're going to have to fight real battles in order for this to happen. It's going to necessitate active faith, not passive faith that simply sits and waits for God to do something on his own. They're going to have to trust that God goes with them. And so it leads us to the third question, on what basis, right? And this is why the beginning part of chapter 33 is so significant. Why do we have 42 campsites? Why do we have this long history of what God has already done? After all, haven't we just made it through the whole book of Numbers? Do we really need to rehash this stuff again? And the answer, as you might suspect, is yeah, you better rehash it again or you will forget. And constantly throughout this mission of occupying the land, God is always giving the people commands to remember. Whether it's taking stones out of the dry basin of the Jordan River when it parts, or whether it's uh, having censuses like earlier in the book, or whether it's uh, writing down a history of campsites, all of this is as much for us today as it was for them and their oral traditions and histories to constantly remember God's faithfulness and His commission on His people. That what God was asking them to do in battling the Canaanites was nothing new. And that God would be with them in the very same and profound ways as he had been with them all along the journey. The same way he had prevailed over Pharaoh through miraculous rescue. The same way that he had parted the Red Sea. The same way that he provided manna and quail in the wilderness and water from the rock. The same way that, that he had overlooked and forgiven their failures and their grumbling and all of these things. As they enter the land, they enter on the basis of God's faithfulness revealed through their history. 
that's really important because if you read their history, it is also not filled with great performances, right? And so the basis is God's faithfulness in their history, not their performance in their history. Why 42 campsites? We can't know this for certain, but scholars have speculated, and I think this makes some sense. Whenever things are named specifically like this, there's reason for it. Whenever there are numbers, there's, there's reasons for these things. And the number seven is a very significant number uh, in all of Scripture <clears throat> that speaks about completeness and fullness and, and perfection. And <clears throat> even in the, in the creation narratives, that speaks about uh, the seventh day being a day of rest because the, the completion of the battle is full. So what you have here if you have 42, and, and if this makes sense to you, obviously it's speculative, is you have six weeks and now about to enter into that seventh week of full rest in the land. Six sevens of camping in the wilderness is going to lead to that final Sabbath rest in God's land. But you've got to trust Him. And you've got to cross the river. And you've got to fight the battles. So we do not have time this morning to see how all of this plays out in its very specifics. But suffice it to say, we can summarize how this goes in the rest of the Old Testament for the people. That is, they fail in every single account. Should we be surprised by this? No. For two reasons. <clears throat> One, we've been reading the story, and so we know and two, they're just like you and me. We all fail all of the time. So God says to them, <clears throat> get, the Gentile, or get the Canaanites out, remove them completely. And it doesn't take but to a couple of chapters into the book of Joshua and the conquest of the land that we find out the Israelites aren't doing any of that. They're not removing them completely. They're not removing their things from the land. And in, jo in, in Numbers chapter 34, that says, here's the full scope of the land. The truth is that if you read even the highest points of the kingdom under King David and King Solomon, they still never possess that full bounty of the land. That is that on both counts, they compromise and fall short. And what happens to God's people eventually? Exactly what he says will happen to them in Numbers chapter 33. That is that you will fall and you will stumble, and you will enter into compromise. And so if you read the history of God's people all the way through the books of Samuel, and then into Kings, and into the prophecy, you find that eventually all of this catches up to Israel. And the compromise that God said would happen to them is lived out in full means. Idolatry, rebellion, disinterest in the things of God, abandoning of the special calling of what it means to be God's people. And all of this leads for the Israelites themselves to be fully expelled from the land that God had promised. In the north, Assyria comes and conquers in the south, Babylon comes and conquers, and they carry away Israel into exile. And Babylon goes on to be conquered by Persia, 
And though in the Persian rule over Israel, they begin to let some people come back into the land to rebuild temples and walls, they're still dominating and controlling Israel. And eventually, Alexander the Great conquers the Persian Empire and has his massive empire and rule over the land. And when Alexander dies, he has no heirs, so his kingdom is split amongst his generals. And the Seleucids uh, have reign over the people of Israel. And though there are some moments of breakthrough through the Maccabean revolts and revolutions, ultimately, the Seleucids control all of Israel and eventually Rome comes and takes over it. And Israel, by the time Jesus shows up on the land, is just as much exiled and put out of the land as they were at the height of the exile in Babylon. That is that second, uh, first century Jews in the days of Jesus saw the Israelites as people in exile. And it's why there became this messianic hope that finally a leader like Moses and a king like David would come and, and would kick the foreign people out of the land and would restore us and move us to the full embrace of the land and enter Jesus. And he starts saying things that sound like he's a Messiah, that he's come to bring the kingdom of God and to forgive sins. And he gathers a following and, and he's healing and casting out demons and he's living into this messianic hope that, that finally Israel is going to live in the land like they wanted. And it, and it moves to this magical moment that we celebrate on Palm Sunday when Jesus enters into Jerusalem like a king, like a messianic rescuer. He's going to be the one that finally gets Numbers 33 right and all of a sudden, he takes a seeming right turn, doesn't he? Out of the city and onto the hill of Calvary. What is going on? Imagine being an Israelite and trying to figure out what's happening in these moments, and yet you and I know something. That Jesus had laid eyes on a far greater enemy than the Canaanites far greater enemy than the Babylonians or the Assyrians or the Persians, the Greeks, the Seleucids, or the Romans of the day. But Jesus understood that though sin had reached its full expression in the people of Canaan and judgment awaited, sin itself was the enemy, not the Canaanites. And the problem was a human problem, not a Canaanite problem. And so Jesus goes to the cross of Calvary to fight the battle that needed to be fought against the great enemy of sin and of death. And on the cross, and ultimately through his resurrection, announces to the world that sin and death have been defeated. This is the gospel that we celebrate. So what on earth does Numbers 33 and 34 even mean to people like us today? Is it just ancient history that we can learn from? Hey, follow God's commandments next time, people or bad stuff happens to you? 
No. When Jesus reappropriates the mission to attack sin and death as the true enemies of God's kingdom on earth, He then calls all people who are joined to Him to engage in the same battle. Moses becomes Joshua. Joshua in his fullness is Jesus who stands ready to lead the people into the land to conquer the enemy that awaits. But the enemy is not the Democratic or the Republican Party. The enemy is not your current representative or senator or any of these things. The enemy is not Hollywood, or the enemy is not uh, some philosophy or idea. The enemy is sin and death. And you and I, on the basis of the gospel, are called into this very real fight. So can I give you a New Testament reappropriation of the commands of Numbers 33 and 34? Your life now belongs to God. It used to belong to other things. And the battle will be fought in your life. So go and battle sin on all its fronts. And allow the kingdom of God to occupy every single part of your life. Be filled with the Spirit, as Paul might say. This is what it means when we read this passage for today on the basis of Jesus. Why? Why are you and I called to battle sin in our life in a very real way? Because Jesus has pronounced judgment on it in the same way God pronounced judgment on Canaan. And because in the same way God warned the Israelites that unless they deal with this Canaanite and cultural issue, it will trip them up continuously, God gives us the same warnings over and over and over again in the New Testament. Perhaps nowhere more profoundly than in the book of Romans, chapter 8 and verse 13, where the Apostle Paul, through the inspiration of the Spirit, says, that sin kills us unless in the power of the Spirit we are killing sin. Or as the great theologian of the 17th century, John Owen, said, the Christian commission is to be killing sin lest sin be killing you. Because if we simply say, as Paul says in Romans chapter 6, Hey, God has saved us, so who who cares about sin? We can keep doing whatever we want. God's given us the land. Let's just go live there with all of these other people. Then what we're really saying is that that grace wasn't worth much. Paul says, if that's your attitude, you don't get the gospel. He says, no, may that never be. It's because of this truth all the more that we go and battle this reality known as sin. The third why, you might have guessed, is that all the areas of your life that you do not lay claim and give to the kingdom of God are open for claim by other things. 
It is why in our world we have so many, myself included and all of us included if we're honest, compartmentalized experience of Christianity. There are parts of us that are uh, obedient and have allegiance to Jesus, and then there's a whole other parts of us that have obedience and allegiance to other things. Why? Because we've allowed them to be claimed by other things. So how do you do this? How do you battle the real enemy of sin and death in your life? Well, it's the same call that God gave to the Israelites in Numbers chapter 33. It is hand-to-hand combat. It is hardcore. It is bruising. It is difficult. It is painful. It takes active faith. There is no pushing a button on the east side of the Jordan and having it all mysteriously go away. You have to actively attack it. On what basis? Well, guess what? Your life also has a history of campsites. For those of you who are campers, you have a real history of campsites. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about the history of seasons in your life. Some of them are great mountaintop and highs. And some of them are really low. And you're really glad that this campsite of yours hasn't been published like that of the Israelites, right? And yet, here you stand on the faithfulness of God. That God's rescue has been active and pursuant through that whole reality of life. And it's on the basis of that that you can go on the offensive against sin and death. Now, I could stop there, and perhaps that would be a good sermon. I'm not sure. But you would leave here thinking, well, that was nice, but you've given me no how except that I've got to go fight this thing somewhere supernaturally, and I have no idea how. So let's take just a few moments in the rest of the time that we have And let's try to get as practical as we can for just a couple of minutes. Because I am more and more convinced that if we fail to engage in this real battle, that the compromise that we see all around us and even in our lives will only continue to prevail and it will cripple and paralyze the church, leaving us with no influence. We are very close to that place in this culture. But more and more, unless we battle these things, we have no right or basis to stand and speak for God. So how? I'll give you one tool this morning because I believe so powerfully in this tool because I think it is the tool that the Apostle Paul gives us over and over and over again. This is your marching orders. This is how you battle sin in a real and active way. And if you've been at at Hope for any length of time, you probably know what I'm about to say. Or when I say it, you'll say, oh, yeah, that's right. It is the renewing of your mind. Paul says, do not be be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. This is not just a Romans 12 concept for Paul. I would suggest to you that Paul is obsessed with the renewing of your mind. So much so that he talks about it in Romans chapter 6 through 8. He talks about it in Romans chapter 12. He talks about it in Ephesians chapter 4. 
He talks about it in, in, in Philippians chapter 4 very profoundly. He's talking about anxiety. Remember, don't be anxious about anything. We say, oh, that's nice, Paul. You don't understand. And then we remember, oh, wait, he's living in prison waiting for death, right? So how can he say this? And he says, you can't, you can't just push a button and magically it goes away. You've got to fight the battle against this. And here's how you do it. He says, in everything by prayer and petition, give your requests to God. So something's happening in your mind where you're turning your thoughts off of the circumstances of life and on to God. And then he says something very profound in Philippians chapter 4, verse 8. He says, finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is noble, if anything is lovely, good, think about these things. Why does he say that? He's telling us to fill our brains with kingdom stuff rather than anxiety-causing stuff. Why? Because it's the renewal of your mind that transforms you, not pressing some spiritual button and feeling like if I just pray good enough prayers or if I sound holy enough, God will mysteriously take it away. So you've got to cross the river. You've got to build foundations and stones and monuments that remind you because it's going to be hard and you're going to say, oh my gosh, this battle is difficult. You're going to have to be able to look. You're going to have to look at campsites and monuments from the basin of the river that say God's been faithful and he's stronger than this. And then you're going to have to go in hand-to-hand combat with your sin, Philippians chapter 4. But it's not just Philippians chapter 4, you might have guessed. It's also 2 Corinthians 10. It's also Colossians 3. You get the idea. Paul is obsessed with this concept. In fact, for Paul, this is the chief way that we cooperate with the Spirit of God in our sanctification. So, what I want to do in the time that's left is just go to Colossians chapter 3. It sounds an awful lot like Numbers 33, and so that's why I chose it, but we could have gone to any of those other passages and heard some of the same stuff. Listen to this. Colossians chapter 3, verse 1. It should be there for you on the Bible app, uh, or you can flip over in your Bibles. Since then you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Listen to this. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. There it is, the renewing of your mind. Isn't it so fascinating that he starts with set your hearts on things above, and then he follows it with set your minds on things above. This is very Pauline. He talks about this all the time. Because he knows the things we love or we desire are the things that we will build our lives on, right? Jesus talked about this in the same way. Where your treasure is, there your heart is also. And so Paul says the key to all of this is get your heart on the things of God. Well, that's easier said than done, right? Because how do you tell your heart to do something? And that's why Paul quickly goes. He says, here's how you do it. You set your mind on things above. That is, you renew your mind in order to cooperate with the Spirit in the transformation of your heart. How do you set your heart and your desire on the things above? You set your mind on the things above, for you died, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with Him in glory. That's a certainty statement. That's a campsite statement. That's a a rocks from the basin of the Jordan statement. That listen, no matter how well the battle is going in this current moment, when Christ appears, all of this is going to be done with and you'll be with Him. Why? Because He's hidden you inside Him. Uh, Interestingly, we've been talking about this at youth group and I asked them, do they ever sneak down at night 
to get a snack after they've been told no more snacks for the night. Uh, and they all assured me that they never do this. I, I can't imagine that's possibly true. And then I said, have you ever snuck down to get a snack at night and all of a sudden mom or dad are still sitting on the couch and they eyeball you out of the corner? They hear uh, something in the closet or whatever, and they say to you, uh, inquisitively, even though they already know the answer, what are you doing? And what do you do with the Snickers bar that you've grabbed or the Twix bar or the cookie or whatever? Well, if you're anything like I was when I was a kid, you stuff it underneath your arm or in your back pocket or around you, right? And say, nothing, mom. There's nothing to see here. Right? You hide it inside you. This is the language of Colossians. That nothing that you have done but what Jesus has done is that he has actually incorporated you into himself. You are hidden in him. That's a Jesus-based thing, not a you-based thing. You can be certain in that, that when Christ appears, you'll be with him. So listen to what he says. Verse 5, here we go. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature. This is Numbers 33 language, is it not? Put to death, right? He doesn't say, hey, let's try not to do that stuff anymore. Or like, just go to the Canaanites and say, hey, listen, God told us to come here. Could you, could you leave? He says, no. Put it to death. Strong language. Therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, greed, which is idolatry, because of these, the wrath of God is coming. You used to walk in these ways in the life you once lived, but now you must also rid yourselves of all such things as these, anger, rage, malice, slander, filthy language from your lips. Do not lie to each other since you have taken off your old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge in the image of its creator. Here there is no Jew or Gentile, circumcised or uncircumcised, no barbarians, no Scythian, no slave, no free, but Christ is all, and Christ is in all. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourself with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, patience. Bear with each other and forgive one another. If any of you has a grievance against someone, forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues, put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. Easy for Paul to say, right? You just kill all these things and start doing all these things. And then you'll follow Jesus. But we know Paul doesn't think that way. He started off with put your heart on things above. And he says, how do you do that? By, by putting your mind on things above. Well, what are the things above? He's already told us what they were, right? That Jesus is seated at the right hand of God. What does that mean? The finished work of Jesus on the cross and in the res resurrection for us is so finished that it assures when he comes back, you'll be found in him. This is a gospel that is meant to transform everything about us and every part of us. Remember we said lay claim to every part of the land? Did you catch the list that goes on here? And Paul could go on. He gives other examples in other places. What he's basically saying is the gospel has bearing on every single part of your life. It has bearing on your sexuality. It has bearing on your speech. It has bearing on your vocation. It has bearing on your politics. It has bearing... Uh, on how you spend your money. It has bearing on how you relate to people. It has bearing on how you raise kids. It has bearing on how you treat your parents. It has bearing on every 
single thing. Set your mind on things above. He uses interesting language, though, doesn't he? He says, put to death the things of the earthly nature. And he says, put on the new self. Paul is using what I would suggest to you is identity language. That Paul is saying, because of what Jesus has done for you, you have a whole new identity. You're hidden in him. You are a new self. And Paul is beginning to express to us what he expresses elsewhere in Ephesians 4 and in Romans 12, that this identity is actually the means by which the transformation is unlocked in you. So how do you renew your mind? You renew your mind by embracing the new identity. I think you can possibly sum up Paul's argument of sanctification in all of his letters with three simple words. Maybe it's not as easy as this, but um, listen and see what you think. The first is belief. It seems to matter deeply for Paul what we believe. The second is identity. It seems to matter deeply to Paul who we are. And then the third is behavior. It seems to matter deeply to Paul how we act. But here's the thing. These three things are deeply connected to one another. They are not isolated. So oftentimes in the church, we have heard religious messages that are not gospel messages. They are behavior modification. They would take a passage like Colossians 3 and say, stop doing all of those things and start doing all of these things. Good luck. I'll pray for you. Right? If you really loved Jesus, you would do this and not this. And it doesn't deal with any of the true struggle of the human flesh. And so what you often have is people who engage in behavior modification, and they try to stop producing fruit, and they can't. They either stuff it through legalism and build a phony exterior around it so that no one sees what's really going on behind it, or it spurts up in other places in their life. And here's why. Because your behavior comes from your identity. And unless and until you change your identity, you cannot fully transform your behavior. And oh, by the way, your identity comes from your belief. What you believe is who you become, and who you become is how you live. This is why it matters so deeply that we get the gospel right. Because if we believe a false gospel or a compromised gospel, it has effects on every part of our lives. Wrong gospel leads to false identity, leads to divergent behavior. True gospel leads to true identity, leads to the fruit of the Spirit. Do you see it? Now, you've already understood this is hand-to-hand combat. This is difficult battle. In this life, we will never achieve the fullness of these things, yet we're called into the day-by-day battle. How do you put on the new self, as Paul calls us to in Colossians chapter 3? 
you regularly embrace your true identity because of Christ. And as you do, it begins to transform you and change how you want to live. Initially through a decent amount of obligation, I won't lie to you, right? Man, I owe God a lot. I should, I ought to do these things to follow Him. But over time, as you continue to dwell and meditate and soak deeply on the truth of what God has done for you through Jesus, obligation turns into true and honest affection, which leads to a life that desires to honor God. You see this? And whereas obligation can lead to the fruit of the Spirit, it often does not lead to a fullness of life. But as you continue to meditate on the things of God, it leads to a spirit of honor or trying to honor God that does lead to a full life. Let me give you an illustration. Uh, we're after church sometimes this afternoon. We're going to go spend time with my parents. I love my parents. I love my mom. I love my dad. Incredible and wonderful people. When I was young, I didn't understand the fullness of their love for me, right? I knew they took care of me. I knew they paid the bills. I was pretty entitled then, though. I felt like I deserved everything I got, and I needed more of it. And so oftentimes, they would ask me to do things, and either I would do one of two things. No, I'm not doing that. Or I would do it. You know how, why I would do it? Because they felt obligated, right? I should, I really don't want to do this, but I should. What's been fascinating for me over the last number of years in my life as I speak to my parents and think about my relationship with my parents, I long for them to ask me to do stuff for them. Weird, isn't it? If you sit back and reflect on it, like my dad, if he reaches out and asks me to do something, like it actually fills my heart to be able to serve him in that way. What's the difference? Over time, sitting in that relationship, experiencing the profound nature of their love for me and how they've cared for me, not just in the present, but over the last 42 campsites. It has changed me profoundly. When Rachel and I were first married, I knew what I was supposed to do, and often it was out of obligation. But now, and sometimes to her frustration, my heart so longs to want to serve my wife that I'll ask her myriads of questions demanding she tell me how I can serve her and she basically like serve me by leaving me alone you know <laughs> the transformation happens over time I didn't push a button and I was magically changed I sat in deep and profound loving relationships and was so transformed by their love for me that it changed me profoundly this is how you renew your mind you see it this is how you engage in the battle. And this is why in 2 Corinthians 10, Paul says, here's what you need to do. You need to take every thought captive to Christ. And this is overwhelming, right? Every thought captive to Christ, yes. And here's why he says it. He says, this actually has the profound ability to bust up strongholds. That's big time language. What's going on here? Paul's calling us in every single thought of life to bring the gospel to bear on that moment. Are we going to get this right every time? No. Are we going to be able to pause and capture every thought captive to Christ? No. But here's what happens as you begin to 
to acquire a discipline of doing it. Remember the list of things you're supposed to put off? Did any of those stick out to you? Anger, that stuck out to me, right? Slander, I can be guilty of that from time to time, usually in the privacy of my own home with a nasty gaze from my wife after I say something. Here's how I've learned I often let anger get a hold of me. Let me be vulnerable with you for a moment. It's different for everyone. This isn't the same for you, but this is what happens. You, you learn to try to capture these thoughts. I've learned the thing that often makes me angry is I feel disrespected. Right? So why am I angry? Because I'm feeling disrespected. You see, this? see what suddenly happened? It's not just a behavior of anger now. It's an identity question. Who am I? Who do people perceive me to be? How could they treat me like that? How could they do these things? And where does that identity come from? From some kind of earthly, inward desire to make something of myself, to seem important to other people, to feel significant to others. That's a false gospel. Do you see it? I'm trying to save myself. So a false gospel leads to a faulty identity that leads to the very thing Paul's saying I need to put to death. I can't put it to death by saying, oh, I've got to stop being angry. I've got to do my best to take those thoughts of anger captive to Christ and to bring the gospel to bear on them. It says, why am I angry? I'm being disrespected. Why does that matter so deeply to me? Because I'm trying to create an image to people that I'm significant, that I'm important, that I mean something. What does the gospel say about me? That I'm so significant that the God of the universe died for me, and not just died for me, but subjected himself not just to anger, but to massive outbursts of rage and anger so that I could be welcomed into his family, a secure identity. And if that's true, then it actually frees me up in this moment to choose patience the list of things I'm supposed to put on. Because after all, wasn't Jesus patient with me? It is that my identity was cemented because of his patience with me that leads me to choose another way. Or slander. Why is it that we want to speak out against people around us? One, uh, oftentimes for me, is I like to cement myself in the pecking order, somewhere up high, right? It's that whole significance idol for me. Trying to make something of myself. You take it captive to Christ. You bring the gospel to bear on it. Why am I wanting to speak out against this person? Because of the pecking order of life. Because I'm trying to make something of myself. The gospel meets us in the belief. That's a false gospel. What does the gospel say? That Jesus lowered himself to the lowest place on the pecking order. Why? So that I could have an identity. He gave up his identity for me. And he calls me an heir of everything. And if that's true, maybe I can choose compassion the same way Jesus chose compassion with me. Listen, I'm under no false pretense. And you should also be under no false pretense that every thought I have, I'm going through that process with. It's a journey, right? But it's one of the ways that we can bring the gospel to bear. Here's the other way. And this happens probably more often than that for me. And I know I'm going long, but this is significant. Repentance, right? And when I say repentance, I mean public 
repentance. It's good for you to repent just you and God, but it's even more profound for you to repent to the person you sinned against. Why? Because it gives you opportunity to bring the gospel to bear on yourself and to announce it to them. That says to my kids when I've, when I've yelled at them in anger, hey, I shouldn't have done that. And here's why. Dad was, was worked up about feeling disrespected by you. And while maybe you should have made a different choice, there was no reason for me to lash out at you in that way. And really it comes from a place where I'm trying to gain a place of significance in your life. But that's not for me to gain. And the gospel reminds me that this is who I am in Christ. And so I should have, and in the future I hope to, choose patience instead of anger. You see it? You're renewing your mind, even if after the fact and some of the damage is done. Here's the deal, friends. Numbers 33 is an interesting historical story. But on the basis of the gospel, you and I, too, are called into the continual battle against the true enemy of the kingdom of God, sin and death. And you are called in your life to engage in it, to be killing sin lest sin be killing you. How do you do it? By renewing your mind, embracing your new identity, putting on your new self, and in so doing, putting to death the old self through the gospel. Can I pray with you?